Bible this morning to Romans chapter 15. We continue in our study of Romans. I was reminded there in those last couple songs of old hymn sings and um, I don't know what the right word is. Judy probably knows, but you know, were they just the going through all the different hymns and songs right into another that we used to do growing up, and just I just always enjoyed that. Thank you guys for leading us. You know, one of the great quote unquote joys of parenting are those moments in which um, your kids. Now, Braden never did this. This is definitely his sisters since they're not here. When your kids, you know, they fight you. We our kids' rooms are upstairs and. We sit downstairs and you hear something break loose, you know, and it's always over something really important like a toy or what toy said this and what toy said that, right? And something happens and there's a fight and they come running down and so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that and what would you do? I punched them or I hit them, I pushed them, whatever, you know, there's something going on and they're mad, you know, just fuming, just furious, you know, and they're just, they can't even take it, you know, they're red-faced and they're crying and and you look and talk to them, and you talk to this one, and you figure out all, everything and work through. And, and as a parent, you lead them to do what? To apologize and ask forgiveness. So you say, I need you to, you need to tell your sister you're sorry. And, of course, what do they do? Sorry. <laughs> you know? And they're looking at you, and... And everything about them, their demeanor, their face, and sometimes they'll even tell you is saying a, a question. Why should I? I mean, do you know what she did? That Lego went where that Lego is not supposed to go. You don't put that Lego there because that's my Lego, and you put your Legos where you want to. You don't put them where I say I don't want them. And I don't want to apologize. You know, and so everything in their demeanor is, well, why should I? And we have all sorts of answers, right? We have good answers. Well, because you love your sister and your sister loves you, right? We talk about how we should forgive and we have all kinds of answers. Maybe sometimes it's just because I said so, right? But we have all sorts of answers. But the question a lot of times in those moments with, as parents is they look at us and say, why should I? Why should I do that? Now, and I think that's what Paul's getting at here in Romans 15. He, he spent the whole of chapter 14, and he gets into it again in 15, talking about the fact that when we live in our Christian freedom, we should not do so in a way that is selfish, in a way that causes, dis, causes disunity, in a way that does not build up others but causes them to stumble. We should not do that. We should live it out in light of the fact that our actions and and the things that we do, the things that we say, have a direct influence on those around us. And so we should live our Christian freedom in a way that builds up those around us. And I think Paul, like a parent, knows that there's some of us that go, well, why should I? Why should I? And he addresses that question in Romans chapter 15. Let's read verses 15, or chapter 15, verses 1 through 13 this morning. The Word of God says this, We who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. 
For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that though I'm sorry, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now, before Paul gets to answering that question of why should I, he kind of wraps up his teaching of chapter 14 and comes back to the idea of the relationship between the weak and the strong and the obligation that we have. And he says there in verse 1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So this is the first time that Paul kind of identifies himself with the strong. He says, we. He, he's saying, listen, I'm with you. I, I would say that I probably should consider myself as one who is quote-unquote strong And you need to know that if you consider yourself as one who would be strong, you need to understand that we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, that obligation just stands out to me. This is something that that we have a responsibility to do. It's something that we have a, a duty to do. It's an obligation that we must take part in. You see, our, our actions for the sake of the week, they're not done just because we, we feel like it or because they're convenient. They're based on a responsibility that we have to show love to those around us, to build up our brothers and our sisters in Christ. It's the same thing that he said back in, in chapter 13, verse 8. You might recall, it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You might recall that when we looked at that passage, that we talked about the fact that, that he's talking about this debt, that there is this, this debt that's always there. He says, don't owe anyone, resolve all your debts previously in chapter 13. But when he comes to verse 8, he says, listen, you're always going to owe the debt of love to your brother. Here again, this is an obligation that we have. It's something that we're responsible for doing, is to build them up, to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, he clarifies three different ways that this works out. There, there's three obligations, you might say, of the strong that we see in verse 1 and 2. First, the first obligation that the strong has is in verse 1, simply to bear with the failings of the weak. The first obligation is to bear with the failings of the weak. This is the same thing he said in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. In Galatians 6 says, 
Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that means the strong, he's talking about the strong there, you who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see the consistency of teaching in Scripture? We are to bear one another's burdens. You who are spiritual, the strong, bear one another's burdens, so and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, how does it fulfill the law of Christ? That is, is something that, again, it should sound familiar to us. Because we said Romans 13, 8, and if you, you read on in verse 9, it says, verse 8, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when we bear one another's burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. Why? Because as in bearing one another's burdens, we are showing that we genuinely love one another. And we then fulfill the law of Christ. So we, as God's people, are to bear one another's burdens. Now, the question is, what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? Let me just give you a few glimpses of what that might look like. One, one would be that to, to genuinely love one another, to bear one another's burdens, means that we pray for rather than gossip about. Right? We, we resist the temptation to go, did you hear what Mark did? Do you hear what's going on in Mark's life? Instead, we simply pray for them. So it looks like praying for rather than gossiping about. It looks like building up rather than tearing down. It's that moment where we speak truth and encouragement into one's life to build them up instead of heaping guilt and condemnation on them to tear them down. To bear one of those burdens looks like pulling in rather than pushing away. Instead of saying, wow, they've been caught in sin, they're in sin, now we're going to push them away. It is instead pulling them in and saying, come alongside me. Let me walk this path with you. Let's go and let me help you in these moments. Pull in rather than push away. It looks like caring for rather than ignoring. It's that, that moment when you see one struggling. You don't turn your head and look the other way. But instead, you look and see how can you care for them in their weakness? How can you care for them in their struggling? It looks like giving grace rather than condemnation. Giving grace rather than condemnation. It's coming alongside them. Giving them what they do not deserve. And helping them in their time of need. The second obligation is to not please yourself, but rather please your neighbor for his good. Verse, end of verse 1, end of verse 2. Do not please yourself. But he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. You see, our, our flesh's default position is what? To please ourself. That's, the, that's where the default needle goes if, if the Holy Spirit is not working, is not present in our life. We simply have an innate desire and ability to be selfish. However, as a child of God, as a born-again believer, as one who has been made new by the life-changing grace of God, we are to please our neighbor for his good. And we are able to do this because Christ has set us free from the bondage of sin. 
So we can indeed look outside of ourselves and look to our neighbor in their time of need in order to build them up and to please them. So we don't live in a way that is just seeking to make ourselves look good. We don't live in a way that is just simply trying to check off a list of obligations and go, well, I have to treat so-and-so this way, so I'm going to go treat them that way. That's not our bent. That's not our posture. But instead, we do so out of a concern for their good. We do it out of love. We have a genuine concern for one another. Now, I know this can be difficult at times. There, there, there's some people that, that you find just easy to love. And there's some people that are difficult to love. And it's probably different people for all of us, right? So one of the things that I would say is very helpful that I've learned to do is to pray for people. I found it very difficult to pray for people and not to cultivate a love that is generated by God because God is going to cultivate that in you. The love that he has for his people is going to be manifest in you. Pray for them. Pray for them. Seek God's blessing upon them. Seek God's good in their lives. Now, I think there's an important distinction that needs to be said here. He says, don't please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor. There's a distinction here between what we might call man-pleasing versus neighbor-pleasing. Man-pleasing versus neighbor-pleasing. And it's an important distinction because one is condemned in Scripture and one is commanded or condoned in Scripture. Man-pleasing would mean living for man's approval rather than God's. It's seeking to justify self before man. It's kind of puffing yourself up to look good in front of others. It's thinking about, well, how will they respond if I do this? How will I get attention from them? How will I do, or what will I do to, to make them like me more? That's, that's man-pleasing. And this is condemned in Scripture. It's not spoken well of. Galatians 1.10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The, the two don't go together. Paul says, listen, I'm serving Christ and I'm living for him. I'm glorifying him and my ministry is about Christ. I'm not trying to please man. I'm not trying to get the applause of men. In 1 Thessalonians 2.4, we read, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. The, the goal, the purpose of Paul's gospel ministry was what? Not to try to please man, to, to make them think highly of him, but to please God. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus tells us, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and, and soul in hell. We're not to walk around in fear of what man, in fear of man and what they think of us. No, that's man-pleasing. And that's not what we're called to do. There's a difference between man-pleasing and neighbor-pleasing because there's an important word that Paul adds on there. He says, let, us, let each of us please his neighbor, what? For his good. I'm seeking to please my neighbor for my neighbor's good. I'm not trying to please man for my good. I'm not trying to make people think highly of me. So neighbor-pleasing would be that of genuine care for the good of a neighbor. It would be a genuine love for your neighbor that builds up your neighbor. It's commanded in Scripture. We've, we've read before Leviticus 19, 18. 
you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Or Matthew twenty two thirty nine, where Jesus quotes this text. When he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He, he gives the first one. And he says, you shall also love your neighbor as yourself. The precedent for what Paul taught in Romans 13, verses 9 to 10. We already read that the commandments are summed up in this word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. So uh, a sinful man-pleasing is seeking to elevate man's opinion of me. But a neighbor-pleasing that Paul teaches us here is one that we look and see what can I do to help my neighbor in a way that builds him up, that encourages him in his faith. And that's the last obligation here, that we are to build up our neighbors. We are to build them up. Now, the, the word that's used here was used to describe the, the construction of a building, right? You, you, might, you might see a building going up on 27, and you, you see the foundations, and then you see the frames, and then it just keeps rising, and it keeps being built, right? This, that's what this word is. Metaphorically, in the New Testament, they use the same word to describe what it looks like to build up the believer, to encourage them, to strengthen their faith. Again, we see it throughout the New Testament. We read it in Romans 14, verse 19. He says that we are to pursue what makes for peace and for the mutual, do you remember, upbuilding, right? We're to pursue what makes for peace and the mutual upbuilding. In Ephesians 4.29, we're talking about our words and then how do, we, how do we interact with others? What's our relationship to look like with other believers? And Paul says, one thing is let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear so our words should build up right first corinthians fourteen twenty six. he says what then brothers when you come together each one has a hymn a lesson a revelation a tongue an interpretation let all things be done for building up see our relations our interactions as the people of god should build one another up it should strengthen one another's faith. This should not be a place where you come in and you expect to be criticized. This should not be a place where we despise one another. This should be a place where we come in and we know that we're going to be encouraged and built up in Christ, our Lord, our head. That should be the demeanor, that should be the atmosphere of this place. That the result of being in the presence of the people of God would be that my faith is built up that my walk with Christ is built up. So here's a simple question. How are you doing this? How are you doing this? Not how should you be doing this. But just take a really quick inventory in your mind of your life. How am I building up people around me? What am I doing on an average Sunday morning when I come in and I talk to people? How am I building them up? How how are they growing in their faith as a result of being around me? How am I spurring others on towards love and good deeds? Like the writer of Hebrews says in 10.24. How, how, how am I sharpening those around me? Causing them to walk more faithfully with the Lord. 
It's like Proverbs 27, 17 says that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Are we sharpening one another? Are we building one another up? How are you doing that? And so Paul kind of comes to a point now where he answers that question that we started with. Well, why should we do this? Why should we do this? He spent all of chapter 14 and the first two verses of chapter 15 talking about our obligation to build up our neighbor, to love them, to live out our freedom in a way that is beneficial and loving and good for them. But why? Why? The the simple answer that he's going to elaborate on is that Jesus is our Messiah. He's our model. He's our motive. He's our Savior. And Jesus is the answer. He is the reason. He has saved us. He has modeled what it looks like to live a God-exalting life. And his gracious love towards us should motivate us to live for him. We see that in the life of Christ. We see that constantly in the New Testament. As as we come and we look and we always see the commands of Scripture are based on God's character and work. You have to come back to that over and over and over again. You have to understand that when we read, and some of you in here, perhaps you're unbelievers, and, and you go, wow, there's just so much that says to do this and do that. You need to understand that it says to do that because of who Christ is and what he has done. It doesn't tell us, Scripture does not tell us to live a certain way so that we can merit our salvation. Scripture doesn't tell us to try to live righteous and get everything together and get it all nice and neat and pretty and tidy and then become a Christian. No, Scripture talks about a Savior who comes and redeems us. It talks about a gracious Redeemer that sees us helpless in our sin and His mercy comes and makes a way for us. And because of that, we now live for Him. We have to see that, and we see that here, that all of this that Paul has said, he's saying, listen, here's the reason. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reason, why should I do this? Why should I think this way towards my brother? Why do I have an obligation to them? Is because Christ himself, he didn't come and just to please himself. But instead, he bore the reproaches of God. All of man's reproach, all of man's disdain towards God, Christ bore himself. So we're going to look, and and I want to give you four reasons that Paul lists out here. There's four reasons that we are to fulfill our obligation to our brother based on Christ. Christ's the reason. There's four reasons that he gives. The first one is verses 3 and 4. Christ did not please himself. He did not please himself. We heard earlier in Philippians 2, 7 that Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He didn't come to please himself. Or we know that Mark 10, 45 says that the the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ didn't come to be served. He, He quotes here in Psalm 69, 9, Paul quotes this passage, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is a psalm of lament. It's one of the more common psalms that the the New Testament writers to, to describe Jesus. That he came and he bore the reproaches of man. The disapproval, the scorn, Jesus bore it. They fell upon 
him. The eternally existent Son of God came to live as the suffering servant, not to please himself, but instead to save sinners. That's why Christ came, not to please himself, to save you and I. He became a servant. Now, Paul kind of takes a little bit of a side note here. It's almost like a footnote or or a parenthetical statement here in verse 4. And it's really important. If you, if you read reference books or you read uh, books that are, you know, they're theological or whatever, or just any kind of nonfiction, I guess, a lot of times if they've got footnotes or endnotes, some of the most valuable things you can learn is to by reading those footnotes. Because there's sometimes where a lot of authors, they'll be, they'll be writing and they're talking about something, and they go, oh, this is really important here, but I, my editor won't let me put it here, or I can't, and I, so I'm going to put a footnote. If you'll go down and read that footnote, there's some a value of information and truth down there. And that's basically what, what Paul does here. He says, Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He just quotes Psalm 69.9. And then he says in verse 4, oh, oh, hey, listen, by the way, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This is an important statement about Scripture. When he says whatever was written in the former days, he's talking about the Old Testament. And there's several things he says. You know, why was it written? He says it was written for our instruction. And what was the end purpose for it being written? That we might have hope. And how might we have hope? Through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures. Paul is making a, a really important statement about Scripture, and particularly about the Old Testament. He's clarifying, he's reminding us that, that God foretold everything about the Messiah in the Old Testament. He looked forward and said, this is what the Messiah would be, this is what he would do. This should be a great encouragement to you and I. That we can look in the Old Testament and see all that God said about the coming Messiah. Then we read in the New Testament and we see everything that Christ did, all that he was. Listen, that one statement in verse 4, I think it should teach us several things. One, it should teach us that all of Scripture is beneficial for us. All of Scripture is helpful for us. Don't just be a New Testament Christian. Read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. All of it is helpful and beneficial to us. It teaches us that Scripture has contemporary relevance for us, contemporary application, meaning for us. This isn't just some dusty history, but that we look and we go, oh, I think there was a passage about that, or I remember that story. No, Scripture has contemporary relevance for us. And then it also teaches us that God's Word gives us hope that endures. It gives us hope that endures. Do you, do you see the re- repetition of hope? We see it all throughout Scripture, but we've seen it a lot, and we've heard about it a lot in Romans, that God gives hope. It's, it's repeated four times in chapter 15, 1 through 13. It's, it's, it's spoken of here that Scripture should give us hope. It's spoken of again in verse 12, talking about the Gentiles, the God, work of salvation that God did. The root of Jesse will come. Even he who raises and rules arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. The concluding statement that we'll wrap up our time of worship tonight today with, may the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope? You see, hope is an important thing in our life. We cling to it. Our hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. Christ is our anchor of hope. And when he says that in verse 4, he says that, that, he would, that we might have hope. It's written in the present tense, just this continual thing that we possess. We always have hope. It does not disappear. It does not fade. It does not disappoint. The Christian always has hope. Why? Because in Romans 5, 5, Paul said, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He's talking about there, and that passes the results of justification, that we have peace with God. And he goes on to talk about because we have peace with God, because we've been justified by faith, we rejoice in our suffering. And down the line, he gets to verse 5, and he talks about the fact that it brings hope, and this hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love in us. And when he writes here in 15.4, your translation, my translation, it just says that we might have hope in the Greek. The definite article is there in the scriptures, uh, the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have the hope. The hope. It is a specific hope, a particular hope. It's the hope that we have in the one who has worked in ages past to save his people. It's the hope that we have in the one who is faithful, the hope that we have in the one whose love is steadfast. It's the hope that we have in Christ. That's the hope that Paul is talking about. It's not some generic hope. It's not some religiously charged, wishful thinking. It is the hope that is in Christ. It is the hope that does not fade and does not wane. You see, in this world, outside of Christ, you can have hope. It's not as though it's, you, you can never have hope, but here's what you find out, is the hope you have outside of Christ is going to be temporary. As, as secure as you may think it is, it will disappoint. Everything that you hope in, in life, outside of Christ, will at some point let you down or disappoint you. Whether that's your ability, whether that's someone else in your life, whether that's a job, whether that's your knowledge, whether it's your sports team, it doesn't matter. Anything there is outside of Christ will let you down. And I'll just tell you now, it doesn't matter how secure you think you are in that right now. You may look and go, you're crazy. But I'm just going to tell you now, it will disappoint you at some point in your life. But Christ alone will never fade, never wane, never disappoint. That is the hope that we have in the gospel. That's the hope that you'll hear this team sing of after we finish this sermon. The anchor of hope that is in Christ and His steadfast love. The hope we have as Christians. The second reason that Paul lists about Christ for why we live that way in regards to our brothers is in verse 5-6. through six, Christ brings harmony between us. He's brought harmony between us. Look at what he says in verses 5 through 6. We are going to get through this passage. Don't, don't be fearful that we're only on verse 5 right now. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one 
voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has brought harmony to us. The same God that provides endurance and encouragement in Scripture is the God who provides harmony, provides unity. We have to remember, we have to see, we have to be reminded that harmony and unity and oneness is a vital theme, it's a constant theme for God's people in the New Testament. We cannot neglect that. We can't think lightly of harmony and unity. We have to take it seriously. And conversely, as we'll find out later in Romans, we have to take it seriously when one comes that would threaten to bring disunity. That's something that God does not take lightly. Why? Why is harmony important? Look at, look at what he says. That together, right? That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There in verse 6. The reason it's important is because the church is most effective in exalting her Lord when she is most unified. If we want to be effective in making the name of Christ known, then we need to be one. There must not be disunity amongst us. Is there diversity amongst us? Yes, there should be diversity amongst us. Do we have different opinions? Absolutely. Paul's already talked about that in Romans 14. But in the midst of our differences, we stand united in Christ. We stand in harmony with one another so that with one voice we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same exact thing again. It's the same exact thing again that Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. When he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. Here we go again. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then that's the chapter where Paul goes on to write about the unity that's in the body of Christ. The oneness that is in Christ. We are called to live in harmony with one, or that when, with one another that we can with one voice glorify God. That has, in the course of my ministry, become the straw that breaks the camel's back on many issues. When God's name, if ever, begins to be profaned, then something has to give. Because the purpose of His people, the purpose of this church, is to exalt the name of Christ. And when there's disunity, that doesn't happen. That's problematic. We must be at one and with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why, on a side note, congregational singing is so important and so beautiful because I think in a very um, practical and a very real way, it's a reminder of the beauty of one voice made up of many voices singing of the one true God of His truth. Third thing in verse 7, the third reason is that Christ welcomed us. He welcomed us. We know that in Romans 5, 8, that we're told that God demonstrated His own love for us in this. 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He welcomed us in. How could we not welcome others in when Christ has welcomed us? I love the words of the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. Written in 1759, and the first stanza says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. (laughs) Come ye sinners. Jesus is ready to save you. It's an invitation. Come unto Christ. It echoes and just hear, I just hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, 28, 30, where he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. Christ welcomes in sinners. He has welcomed us, Paul says in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. For the glory of God, welcome one another, because Christ has welcomed you. And then finally, the final reason that we are to treat one another in this way, based on Christ, is that in verses 8 through 12, we see that Christ became a servant. Christ became a servant. He he did not live for himself. He brought harmony to us. He has welcomed us. Why? Because he became a servant. Now, Why does he do this? Look at verse 8. Paul gives three reasons why Christ did this. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Why? To show God's truthfulness. That's the first thing. To show God's truthfulness. The second, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And then, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ became a servant. It was in the plan of God to bring about salvation and to bring men from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, Jew and Gentile, in to welcome them in to the household of faith. And to prove this point, Paul just comes back to the Old Testament. Remember what he said in verse 4? Remember he said the value of the Old Testament? Hey, by the way, you need to know that the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. It's valuable. It should encourage us. It should produce endurance. Let me remind you, Christ became a servant to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises that he gave to the patriarchs. And what might that promise be? You remember Genesis 12 where, where God speaks to Abraham and he says that he's going to be the father of just one particular little nation. No, he says he's going to be the father of many nations. Right? He casts Abraham's gaze to heaven, right? And says, I want you to look at the stars and, and see the number of the stars, so will your descendants be. The promises. Christ came as a servant to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he goes on and he just starts quoting Old Testament verse after Old Testament verse four times. He quotes the Old Testament to say, listen, here's what God did to work his mercy among the Gentiles, to welcome them in, to bring them in. And we should welcome one another. It doesn't matter if we're different than one another. It doesn't matter if we have different opinions about what it looks like to live out our Christian freedom. It doesn't matter that we have different convictions. We operate within the truth of who God is. We operate based on the truth of His Word. And we operate in love for one another, in patience with one another, endurance with one another, for the good of one another, building one another up, bearing with one another's weaknesses, lifting them up in their failures. 
The reason we do all that Paul said is because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. So, you walk out of this place and later today or tonight or tomorrow or whenever you're thinking about Romans 14 and 15 and you think about, wow, I have to be patient with my brother and I, I need to build them up and that could mean that I set aside my freedom for the good of his faith. And you think about all the things we talked about these past three weeks. Don't you dare say, well, I'm just going to have to do that because my pastor said so. That's a terrible reason. No, we do that because he said so. We do that because he did that. That's why. Why should I do it? Because of Christ. Because of who he is. Because of what he's done. So as we close, the worship team's going to come up and they're going to close us in a song that may or may not be familiar to you. You may have listened to it some online this week. Anchor of Hope. And if you don't know it, I want you just to listen to the words. I want you to be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. And I want to just toss a few questions at you this morning. We've covered a lot in Romans 14 through 15, 13 in three weeks. I want to just ask you, where do you need to grow in relation to those around you? So, so are, are you living to please yourself more than you are your neighbor? I ask yourself that question. What, am I living more to please myself? Or am I living to please my neighbor for his or her good? That's a tough question, one we need to wrestle with. What about, what about or am I actively seeking to live in and build the harmony of our body here? Like how, what am I doing to build the unity at Grace Baptist Church? What am I doing to promote harmony in our body? Or maybe, maybe you want to ask, do I welcome other believers regardless of their background, regardless of their opinions, regardless of their struggles? Do I welcome them in? Do I look and see, you know what? He's different than I am. She's different than I am. But we are all bound in the household of faith by the blood of Christ. And then maybe another question. Are, are you actively seeking to grow as a servant of Christ? And are, are those around you, are they spurred on to grow? Consider those questions this morning. And perhaps this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, we bow and we praise you, our anchor of hope. And we thank you that the hope that we have in you does not disappoint. We're thankful, God, for your word, all of it, that produces hope. And God, we're thankful for your body here at Grace, God, that we are blessed to be a part of. God, I pray that you would help us 
obediently apply your word in the past three weeks in Romans 14 and 15 to set aside our own feelings, our own freedoms for the good of our neighbors. And let us not walk in selfishness, seeking to just please ourselves. But God, let us walk as Christ walked, genuinely loving those around us. And that is our prayer this morning. In the name of Christ, amen.